right, guys, welcome to the Codex Cantina. I am Una, no crypto today, but we are going to have a lot of fun with William Faulkner's Dry September. It was first published in 1931 in Scribner's Magazine back in the good old days when authors could make money off of short stories. It is frequently quoted as one of William Faulkner's greatest short stories, and by golly, I have to agree, this story is fantastic. Let's break down what makes it amazing today. So the first question you may be having is, what am I getting with this story? Well, first we're going to the the ever-famous Jefferson, Mississippi, made-up shared universe that William Faulkner has written many of his stories in. It's one of those where this is broken down where there's an alleged crime in five parts, and this can probably be read over a lunch hour. And it's also one of the more accessible Faulkner writings as well, where this isn't going to be one of the more difficult ones to get through. While some of the themes are very transparent, I think there are some underlying ones that I want to break down with you today. I think the obvious one is there is a theme of racism in the lynch law, kind of back in the day. We have Hawkshaw kind of representing the due process and McLendon representing the, the mob mentality. I think we're going to have some interesting discussion there. You obviously probably noticed that since this is called Dry September, the weather and description of the atmosphere is very critical for driving a lot of the tone for each of these scenes. And in terms of a third theme that I think doesn't get much attention is I want to talk about kind of the Southern belle of this story, as well as kind of what the, you know, this was a predominantly Southern white driven state, that there are some racism themes here about how they use the Southern belle to drive and maintain some of the unequalness that, that the South experienced back in the day. As a fair warning, there is language in this. They do drop the N-word. If you're one of those people that think that if the word's in there, then the, the work is unacceptable, this, this is not gonna be a piece for you. But if you're one of those people that understands it's used in a, in a horrible fashion, it's a teaching moment, and you'll see that it's only used in moments of hate or moments where it fits the story and attitude, and it's not coming from the narrator. It's coming from those that are, are bigots or racial discriminists. We do have the matter of a sexual assault, which may not be appropriate for younger readers, but it is a very good story for those that are probably in the mature area. And stick around, and we'll talk about some recommended reads that I think kind of fit along this theme. If you enjoyed Dry September, or if you like these other recommended reads, we're gonna have a happy story baby today. So I wanna experiment with a new process instead of doing kind of like quotes, plot, breakdown. I wanna go through the plot and break it down at the same time and see how that goes. Probably a big disaster, so you're welcome. So we kind of start with a very interesting opening description, which I think is very important for understanding the tone and how he uses the weather to describe the scenes. Through the bloody September twilight, aftermath of 62 rainless days it has gone like a fire in dry grass the rumor the story whatever it was so it's interesting that he describes the twilight as bloody red i usually don't go up to my friends and say hey how was your day and they're like oh it was a, a very bloody afternoon and it's like okay um as long as he's not british i'm, I'm probably kind of like well that sounds kind of scary what, what, what do you mean bloody that's going to set the tone for the story i think entering spoiler territory people have asked the question of did will mays actually die and i think that is ridiculous no, the author does not directly call out whether he died or not, but I'm going to show you all the points that, in my opinion, it is, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that that is not exactly what happened because there are so many things that don't make sense if that's exactly what, what didn't happen. But starting off, he talks about the drought, how it's been going through on for 62 days. What is a drought? 
A drought is a moment where you don't have much rain, and they're always measured in length. It was 60 days, it was 15 days, the three-month drought. The thing about droughts is there is a period of being in that status waiting for change, okay? There's, there's got to be something, an impetus that comes in, the rain, and then we're no longer in the drought. We're looking forward to the next thing. I think that plays a bigger role in this piece, particularly when it comes to character attitudes and just kind of how they are as things start out. So we start off in the barber shop, or as my wife calls the therapist chair. It's the watering hole to play a pun on words with the dry September where people come to talk. And you have people talking about this alleged incident where a woman, 38 or 39 years old, Minnie Cooper, has claimed that another man, Will Mays, has sexually assaulted her. And she, in the scene, they've described that she's had some other claims like this that it calls her character into question. So did she do it? Did she not? We don't really know. That's a good question. But then the real question is, what does this impact the people in the story? So you have the locals discussing what should happen. You've got Henry Hawkshaw, who represents due process. Hey, hey guys, let the sheriff figure this out. He's going to break it down. He's going to get the evidence. We'll get our answers then. And then you've got McLendon, who represents kind of the, the mob rule. So, you, so in the beginning, you've got Hawkshaw arguing with the patrons of the, the barbershop about whether Will Mays is guilty or not, as if any of them would know, right? But this is the drought. This is where they're all waiting for something to happen. None of them are taking action at this point in time, but they're discussing things. There's a violent, bloody twilight happening. And what happens is McLendon comes in. McLendon is that, that spirit of change for the story. He enacts a very common theme in Southern literature called lynch law, all right? And what lynch law was, before being given their due process like Hawkshaw is pushing for, they take matters into their own hands. They're the vigilantes that will hang and murder people that don't have the the mob or the, the, the stigma of the environment behind them, the stigma of hate and anger in the South that, that, that existed at that time for people of uh, minority status. And they will enact their version of justice, which is hanging them. And that was a, a method for them to keep power back in the time. It was a method for striking fear. It was a method for exercising their hate at the time. And what you'll see is all these people in the shop were talking about it. Oh, I would never stick up for that guy. How could, how could you ever trust you know his word over this white woman's word? And, and that's another talking point that we need to get into is the woman representing kind of the Southern Belle, the woman that needs to be protected, the woman that's always right, the woman that is worshipped in a sense. And what happens is, is these men, and this is reality, this, this actually happened in the South and it's a horrible thing, use them as an excuse to enact lynch law. So this is where you see McLendon say, who's with me? And one by one, they start getting up, right? First, several men get up, and then one by one, people will follow him. There's even that guy in the barbershop scene where he's like, I'm not even from this area, but I'm not going to stand for this. Very clearly, what you see is McLendon being the, the, the impetus for change for all these men to now take action, you know, in the same way that from a drought, you're waiting for something to change, you're waiting for that rain to come for it to become the next stage. And you have Hawkshaw that's kind of pushing for them not to take action. Interesting, his name, Hawkshaw. Hawk being kind of, I think, a plan words in terms of observing, watching. He's the guy that says, no guys, don't take any action. We need to let the process handle this. And McLendon being the direct opponent to that, where we have him saying, happen? What the hell difference does it make? Are you going to let the Black Suns get away with it until one really does it? 
So here you see him using fear to incite the mob rather than facts or any logical disposition of the matter. And it's interesting at the same time, Hawkshaw even uses, they describe him as using the razor pressed up against the neck to kind of suppress the guy from getting up. That adds a lot of tension to this scene and Faulkner is a master of, of just this human interaction in this heightened sense. And that's when Faulkner continues to use the atmosphere where he says, you know, after everybody's leaves, leaves the air was flat and dead. This is a fallback to the red sky. The weather is being described as unbearable. He says, it's enough to make any man do anything. No bigger purpose here allows men to act savagely than the weather or the need to protect their status. So in part two, we finally learned that we're in Jefferson, Mississippi. Welcome to a Faulkner piece where he gives you context at really strange and late places in the story. And you get to learn a little bit more about Minnie, who's 38 or 39. They talk to her about going and negotiating uh, in town without ever an in any intention of purchasing something. So what does this tell you from a reader perspective? This shows you that she's used to captivating attention for her own purpose. If she's negotiating with this guy with no intention of any type of financial investment, she's wasting his time. She's using this as a self-serving mechanism for her to get attention on a one-off scale, right? So now we're entering another phase where she is claiming that she was sexually assaulted by this by by Will Mays. Is that going to get her attention? Is that her MO? Do we see that called out at any point in the story? You know, contrast this with this chapter where we learn about her as a younger person, where she was running around with, you know, the banker with the red car. I'm fairly certain it was kind of confusing this passion in the Reavers where they described that, where the narrator describes that Despain's car, although Despain owned it and drove it daily through Jefferson streets for several years, it's very scarlet color being not even a scornful defiance of the town, but rather a kind of almost inattentive disavowal. So not 100% sure because the narrator doesn't recognize it as the first car, but it, it seems like it was the first car, but... In theory, that should be the man as a fun little connected universe Easter egg who she was going out on the date with. I digress. Her description when she was a young woman. When she was young, she had had a slender, nervous body and a sort of hard vivacity which had enabled her for a long time to ride upon the crest of the town's social life as exemplified by the high school party and a church social perks of her contemporaries while still children enough to be unclass conscious. So... Along with that and the bright dresses that you saw her wear, she was used to getting a lot of attention. And since she never married and since she never settled down with anything, she's now at that point where she's no longer getting the attention that she did when she was a younger woman. What's a girl to do to get some attention around here, right? So going back to the dry September theme, she's having no action. She's in her drought. She's waiting for something to come along, something to introduce change to bring about ending this drought, if you will. So chapter three, we go back to the bartender where we have Faulkner saying, the barber went swiftly up the street where the sparse lights, insects world, glared in rigid and violent suspension in the lifeless air. Violent, oh my gosh, violent suspension in the lifeless air. Again, using that atmosphere to convey the tone. This is a great way to describe the feelings of the town. So Hawkshaw catches up with the mob and says, he didn't do it, he didn't do it. And he kind of gets 
pulled into to, to the, the truck at this point in time. So again, if we're going with that mob mentality, they're slowly entering this truck one by one. And here the guy that doesn't even want to be involved gets put in this truck too, right? And at this point, he's showing a lot of uh, pride in the town where he says that, Ain't no town that has, you know, people like, like that they have here. You can't be doing this. Shows kind of also that person versus object mentality where Hawkshaw is representing Will Mays as a real person. And you'll notice that he is describing him by name or, or other words while McLendon is using the N-word specifically. And the narrator doesn't say it. The narrator never once, if I'm correct, when I read this, I've read this probably four or five times now, I don't think I ever saw once the narrator use the N-word. It was always McLendon or an angry mob member that used it. And McLendon only used his name once when he was trying to call him out of the house. So again, the character voicing in this is very strong to show the racial discrimination and issues that McLendon represented. Hawkshaw, who didn't see them as objects, but so much as people that deserved respect. So now they go to uh, Willie May's house. They call him out. He's very shocked, kind of like, now, whether he did it or not, you can't use this as, as, as the reality, but he plays that role of what's going on, what, what's going on, and he says captain, captain being a, a term of, of respect back in the day, and this is when he gets thrown into to the truck, and, and, and they start hitting him. McLendon starts it, then the cronies start hitting him as well, and the manacles, the, the chains that he's wearing come up and strike the barber, Hawkshaw, as well, and then Hawkshaw hits him as well. This is... You might be wondering, why did he hit them? It was obviously an accident. This is Faulkner breaking in that mob mentality, the lynch law, how one person can spark a change and issues in others of hatred, of how they express their dominance. And, and that's what's happening is now is even Hawkshaw got caught up with it, with hitting him when he got struck with the manacles and his emotions came out. I don't think he was saying Hawkshaw was racist, but he was saying he was getting caught up in the mob at this point in time. So they're driving along with Will and they're obviously not going to do, they're not taking him to the ice cream social, right? They're probably going to kill him. They're going to do the lynch law. And the barber feels horrible. He's no longer on the bandwagon. So what does he do? He asks to get off. He wants to get out of the truck. And that's what he does. He, he, he jumps out and, and they take off with Butch, remember, on the back of the, the truck, right? Because they don't want Will to jump out. They've got a guy kind of stationed there. And that's important for this next part where the truck goes away, okay? And when it comes back, what does, what does our narrator uh, Hawkshaw see? He sees only four men on the truck as opposed to the five men that left when Will was there. Is Will the one that's missing? I think you kind of have to say that because they specifically call it that Butch is no longer in the back. There's nobody watching the trunk as if Will Mays was back there. Uh, he wouldn't be back there watching if there was no one there. So very clearly amongst other points that we'll get to, Will Mays was taken out to be hung or murdered for a crime that has not been confirmed in Southern Lynch law. You also get a quote here about eternal dust. Uh, if you weren't sure what that meant, that is, I'm pretty sure that is a reference to Genesis 3.19. For dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. So once again, this is evidence that just implies that Will has returned to the eternal sleep and gone to the afterlife, if you will. But now you'll notice that the weather is described as being calm as opposed to bloody and violent. So now we go back to part four where Minnie enters town. She's with her friends. She's in the center and she's wearing pink. Again, going back to that thing that she is seeking attention. And we see that reinforced with the people of this town. We have this quote, 
Then the drugstore, where even the young men lounging in the doorway tipped their hats and followed with their eyes the motion of her hips and legs when she passed. She wasn't getting that attention before she uh, had this story, whether it happened or not. We don't, we don't know, but I think this kind of implies that this was a way that she was using a minority character to, in the same way that the men are establishing dominance with lynch law through hatred, fear, and murder, she is using lies and her ability to not be questioned as a Southern belle to elevate attention to herself, something that she self-servingly needed and, and horribly represented with this town by claiming that this man sexually assaulted her. So insert yourself into 1931. Here is Faulkner making a statement on the validity of truth. He's asking people to question it and to ask if blindly going along with these assertions is the correct thing to do. Very easy to look at this with modern eyes and not think this was important, but this came out in 1931. Kudos to Faulkner for bringing this up. And as they're walking around town, they mention that there's not a person of minority in sight. I think this once again goes back to the fact that He's implying that they know Minnie made this up. And if Minnie made it up about him, would he make it up about any of those other people? And if you are one of those people of the minority where your word has no ability to combat the Southern Bell's word, would you want to be near her? Would you want to potentially be caught up in the next scandal for her to get self-serving attention? I wouldn't be going to the square if that was the case. So then she goes to the movies and they talk about the silver glare. Remember 1931, black and white. That's what the silver means. And Minnie starts laughing and her friends kind of rush her home. And I think at this point you're starting to question, is she laughing that she's breaking down that she got away with it and is kind of having that type of a, a, a realization attack? Or is she laughing out of a hypersensitive issue where she was sexually assaulted and is now breaking down and, and, and pierced that emotional veil that she was putting up to try to stay strong? I think Faulkner does an interesting job of raising these points and uh, allowing us to have that literary discussion of which angle we think she is coming from. I think that he's provided a lot of evidence of her seeking attention from others, not having it, and this being an example of an MO for it. But he doesn't talk about the impacts that it's had on her other than this laughing breakdown that I think it's meant to heavily imply that she, she made this up as a self-serving interest, but it's not confirmed. Final chapter really wraps it up for readers, I think. This is the McLendon chapter where we come home and we find that his wife is awake and still reading and he gets very abusive with her and he strikes her. We know that McLendon has been abusive before because of her fear, before it even happens. He goes into his room and the way he takes off his shirt is he ripped this shirt off, very violent ways to describe a man disrobing. These are all meant to kind of convey his character, which is an abusive, hatred-filled Southerner that has just murdered someone and is still having aggression that he's taking out on his home, on his, someone that he's supposed to love. You're not supposed to have sympathy for a man like that. So at this point, I think, is the nail in the coffin for any type of a defense, I think, for saying that Will Mays was not murdered. He throws a gun on the bed. If you are familiar with Chekhov's gun law, the idea is that you can't put something in a narrative unless it has meaning. We're in a short story. Everything in this short story has meaning. Faulkner is a brilliant writer. Put that gun there for a reason. And Chekhov's law says you can't put a gun in there unless that gun goes off. So while the gun didn't go off directly in this story that we saw, it's heavily implied that he used that gun for the lynch law scene that was off camera, if you will, when we jumped back to Minnie. Faulkner would not have put that gun there if it didn't, and he, he wouldn't have made McLendon as violent and described the air as dead and calm at this point in time 
if he didn't very clearly imply that this is a lynch law situation where they where McLendon incited the town to take his own vigilante view of justice on this claim in this situation where they took a southern white woman, the southern bells word over any other minority's uh, word on the situation and enacted his own ju- uh, form of justice on this. You know, and I think this is the concept of a woman sinking attention isn't something that is unique to just this story. Uh, arguably more famous than this, and this is already a, a wonderful, well-written story. Uh, he also wrote a piece called A Rose for Emily, which is also dealing with a woman seeking attention. You can kind of see some similarities between Minnie Cooper and Emily in that story. So what did you guys think? Do you kind of agree that Will Mays definitely didn't make it? And also, do you think that Minnie made up this story? Or do you think it was just a, uh, it really was a horrible event and that's what caused her to break down? I'd love to hear your thoughts down below. If you really enjoyed this story, there are some other stories that I'd recommend. I think it's painfully obvious, painfully obvious This story is also explored from a similar perspective in many more pages in To Kill a Mockingbird. It has the same Southern Belle account of a woman claiming that a a man of minority did something. But of course, it's a lot more conclusive (laughs) in that story in terms of the crime and what crime actually happened. Another good read is The Adventures of a Huckleberry Finn. I know these are both very famous works, but if you do enjoy such a short story as this, you should probably check out these stories which flesh out the concept and idea more with the idea of uh, what does it mean to be a slave and what does it mean to treat people of minority with respect when Huckleberry Finn. In terms of a rating for this story, I'm going to have to go with a 9 out of 10. It is darn well one of the best stories that I've read on the Southern Belle uh, concept and in terms of, of the, the Lynch law. Very succinct, 15 pages, I think it is, in, in the printing that I have, that uh, it's hard to spend a lunch hour and on this and not get some value out of it. So so guys, we post videos two to three times a week. We post a video every Monday and Thursday. We have done videos on the Reavers. We have done videos on barn burning on two soldiers. Please consider subscribing to check out more of Faulkner that we have coming at you. I am breaking down more short stories and we will be doing more of his novels in the future. Appreciate your guys' time. Please leave comments or questions down below. I do try to get back and comment to anyone that does take the time to put anything in our comments below. Una out.